Well, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Our sermon text this morning, as Marcus mentioned, is Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Let me read that for us. We'll get started. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, a circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, I agree with Marcus how we need your help. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this time be acceptable in your sight. Lord, lift up your son, Jesus, to our good, to your glory, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that our culture screams at us, it is that if you want to live well, you must be yourself. You must be who you are. That idea is everywhere in our society. It's in our music and has been for a while. Back in 1969, a Cass Elliot sang these words in her top 40s hit, Make Your Own Kind of Music. Mama Cass sang, You gotta make your own kind of music. Sing your own special song. Make your own kind of music, even if nobody else sings along. Be yourself, says Mama Cass. More recently, in 2019, one of the great poets of our age, Taylor Swift, and Brendan Urie sang a song called Me, capital M, capital E, exclamation point. I'm not even going to read you the lyrics. It's about me and me being myself and how awesome that is. This idea is all over our movies. Remember The Lion King, when Simba has an identity crisis, and the crazy pantheist monkey Rafiki helps him have a vision of his father Mufasa in the clouds. What does Mufasa tell Simba in the voice of James Earl Jones? He says, Simba, remember who you are. You're the Lion King. Be who you are. Or in Toy Story 4, when Woody and Bo Peep are trying to convince Canadian stunt toy Duke Kaboom, who always lands with a crash, to jump the aisle in the antique store, Bo Peep encourages Duke with these words. She says, be the Duke you are right now, the one who jumps and crashes. Disney's message to your kids is very clear. Be yourself. Be the authentic you. That idea even gets expressed in our casual conversations. Uh, maybe you've heard someone tell you, you do you. Anyone heard that? You do you, right? That is to say, that's not what I would do, but you're being the authentic you. Therefore, it's okay what you're doing. Even if you haven't heard that, right? Surely at some point in your life, before an interview or before a date or something, someone has encouraged you, to just be yourself, be authentic, be natural, be who you are. It'll be great. Just be yourself. It's the prevailing wisdom of our day. Uh, and like most powerful ideas in our culture, I think this idea contains a really important kernel of truth mixed in with some very pernicious lies. So on the one hand, there's something to be said 
for being yourself, right? The Bible teaches that Christians' relationship with God is to be marked both by deep reverence for the holy, holy, holy king of the universe uh, and by the freedom of a child who knows he is loved by his father, who is fully loved and accepted, right? Our personalities, insofar as they're not warped by sin, our personalities are good things, Having a personality is part of being made in the image of God, and it's good when we can live in a way that freely expresses those personalities within the boundaries of God's law in order to glorify God and love other people. But on the other hand, while there is something to be said for being yourself, our culture's version of being yourself utterly fails to reckon with the reality that our authentic selves are deeply corrupted by sin. So look with me for a moment at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, two chapters earlier. So in this verse, the Apostle Paul is describing to the Colossians what they were like, what all of us were like before Jesus saved them. And Paul writes this. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And Paul says that before Jesus saved them, the Colossians were alienated from the God who made them. He says that the default setting of their minds was to be hostile toward God. That was who they were at the deepest level. The most fundamental thing about them, right, their relationship with God It was characterized by rebellion. So when the Colossians lived authentically, what were they doing? Well, the text says they were doing evil deeds. That's our default when you do you. That's why we don't tell that to three-year-olds before we've disciplined them a little bit. Because if you tell a three-year-old to do you, it will be ugly. So I'm no sophisticated cultural commentator, uh, but it seems to me that our society thinks that the highest good is that we would all be our authentic selves. And in fact, the big problem in our world is anything and all of the things that get in the way of us being our authentic selves from doing whatever we feel like doing, even if the obstacle to you being you is the body that you were born with. Friends, can you see that the Apostle Paul takes exactly the opposite approach in Colossians? For Paul and for the God of the Bible, you doing you is the problem. Right? When you do you, That's what's wrong with the world. Your authentic self is not fundamentally good anymore. That's because although mankind was created good in God's image, good like he was, we have all, every one of us, turned away from him in rebellion and we've become corrupt, right? It's not just that we mess up, it's that we're broken. It's not just that we have a cute defect like the Duke Kaboom toy, right? It's kind of funny that he crashes It's that our authentic selves are warped by sin. We have become morally ugly at the deepest level. So, brothers and sisters, that's why it's such wonderful news, as we considered last week, that through union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, Christians have been given a new self a new identity. Listen again to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 2 and 3 from what we looked at last week. Paul writes this. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? Because of God's mercy offered in his son Jesus, Anyone who will realize that they are the problem in their relationship with God, 
Anyone who will turn by faith to Jesus, who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, who now sits at the right hand of God, not only will God forgive all such people who will turn to Jesus, God promises to make them new, to change them, to give them a new self. The Bible teaches, remember from last week, that apart from Jesus, we live under the enslaving power of sin. We're stuck being hostile to God. And so our authentic selves may, by God's common grace, be able to cultivate some very positive and wonderful qualities. But deep down in our hearts, there are desires There is a hostility to God that, given the right conditions, will erupt in open rebellion and destructive wickedness. The good news of the gospel is that everyone who turns to Jesus dies with Jesus. Our old broken identity is done away with. Jesus' death strikes a death blow at the sin that had enslaved us. And Jesus' new resurrection life becomes in us an active principle, a fountain of new life, an engine of change that makes us like Jesus. And that's really the good news that the Apostle Paul is unpacking and applying in our text this morning. Look with me at Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, get this, after the image of its creator. After the image of its creator, what does that sound like? The first chapter of the Bible teaches that we were created in God's image. That's our job description. Be good like God is good. Reflect his character in the way you live, in the way you treat others, in the way you love him. When we rebelled against God, we became twisted pictures of God, right? But Paul says in our passage that those who trust in Jesus are being restored to the image of God. We are being renewed, changed, transformed into the good image of our creator. Jesus restores our true human identity. If you want to know what it means to be truly human, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So what we find Paul doing in our passage is telling Christians to be who they are. Paul is telling Christians not to do whatever they feel like, just to be clear. But Paul is telling Christians to live in light of the new identity that they've received in Jesus, the identity that's being restored to reflect God's perfect image. And more specifically, in our passage, Paul is commanding us to turn away from the old sinful practices that characterized our former selves, our former way of life. In our passage, Paul uses words like put to death and put away uh, to describe how Christians ought to abandon, right, ought to turn from the practices of their old sinful selves, the self that was identified with Adam in disobedience to God. So just to give you a skeletal outline of the passage, In these verses, Paul really gives us two lists of five sins each. There in verses 6 to 8. Two lists of five sins. Each list has a theme. And then after the two lists, he gives us another command in verses 9 and 10. Uh, And then in verse 11, he hints about one final sin uh, that Christians are called to put away. So if you're counting, that's 12 sins uh, in total. And Lord permitting, we're going to address every word in this passage. But for the purposes of our outline this morning, so that we don't have a 12-point sermon, I think we'll be helped to see that there are really four categories of sin that Paul commands us, those who have been made new in Jesus, to turn from. So first, category of sin, beginning there in verse 5. First of four categories of sin. And by the way, this is the longest point. There in verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first category of sin from which Paul urges us to turn is from sexual immorality. So often in the New Testament, when Paul is listing sins, as he does in his letters, uh, very often sexual immorality is the first thing that Paul addresses. Uh, And the Bible teaches that in light of, I'm sorry, excuse me, in light of the Bible's teaching about human sexuality, that makes a lot of sense. It's very important to who we are. So the Bible teaches that human sexuality was created good. Uh, The text of Genesis makes clear that our maleness and our femaleness and our capacity for marriage is part of our creation in God's image. God created sex to be enjoyed exclusively within the lifelong covenantal union of marriage between one man and one woman. So sex was meant to be an act of mutual self-giving love, literally a life-giving love and picture of Jesus' love for his people. Sex was God's ordained means for us to fill the earth with his image bearers to his glory. So according to the Bible, our sexuality is not ultimate. It's not the most important thing about us. But it is really important to who we are, our sexuality. And so because our rebellion against God has warped who we are, it's no surprise that our sexuality has become perverse as a result. Right? Our sexuality was meant to be regulated by self-control. And it was meant to run on the engine of self-giving love to the glory of God within the boundaries of his good, wise law. But because of sin, our sexual desires are shot through with selfishness. Our sexuality runs on a desire to use other people to gratify me on my terms, not God's terms. Right? We pine for selfish gratification of our sexual desires outside of God's design. We think we know better than him how our bodies should be put to use. And let me take a moment just to point out to you five ways that Paul describes sexual immorality in these verses, or five things that Paul says about sexual immorality here. So notice first, Paul calls sexual immorality earthly. Sexual immorality is earthly, right? There in verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality Sexual immorality is earthly, but notice, God glorifying sex within marriage is not earthly, even though both happen, literally, on earth. Well, what does Paul mean here? I think that our brother Marcus served us extremely well in his explanation of the heavenly and the earthly kingdom. Let me give you a really quick biblical theology. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. God ruled from heaven, and we lived on earth. We communed with the God of heaven at the meeting place between heaven and earth, the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, looks a lot like the tabernacle and the temple and the New Jerusalem later in the Bible. When mankind on earth sinned, we, God's representatives on earth, we plunged earth into rebellion against heaven. And so since the fall, since the first, uh, men's, or first man and first woman's disobedience, even though the earth was created very good, and even though there's nothing wrong per se with physical stuff, the default setting of earth dwellers is hostility to God, is acting like God is down here on earth rather than up in heaven. And that's why sexual immorality is earthly. It's not because physical stuff is bad, right? Sex in marriage is physical and it's good. Uh, But sexual immorality is earth doing its own thing in rebellion to the God of heaven's rules, right? Sexual immorality is earthly because it no longer reflects the heavenly picture of Jesus' love for his people. It's earth in rebellion against heaven. Sexual immorality is first earthly. Second thing we need to see about sexual immorality in this passage Sexual immorality comes from within. 
Sexual immorality comes from within. Look again at the words Paul uses to unpack sexual immorality there in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, right? That word carries the idea of something being morally dirty. Passion. Where does passion exist? Out there? No, passion exists in our hearts. He says, passion, evil desire. You remember where the book of James tells us that our evil desires come from? They come from within, from our hearts. Covetousness, we'll think more about that in a moment. Covetousness is an in here problem. So listen, there's a lot to be said about fleeing the temptations to sexual immorality out there in the world, right? Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul tells us, flee sexual immorality, flee sexually explicit media, flee from nudity in movies, flee from relationships and situations in which you are tempted to compromise sexually, flee from inappropriate intimacy from people who are not your spouse, flee from all pornography and all temptations to use pornography by whatever means necessary. We have to flee the sexual temptations out there in the world. But we also have to reckon with the reality that we have enough to be sexually immoral just inside our hearts. It's not only sexually perverse out there, and be sure it is. We're sexually broken in here. Sexual immorality is earthly, and sexual immorality comes from within. A third thing we need to see. Notice that sexual immorality is idolatry. Sexual immorality is idolatry. So Paul concludes uh, this list of sins, this first list of five sins clustered around sexual morality, uh, with the word covetousness, which he says is idolatry. So Paul could be talking about just all kinds of covetousness. In other places in the New Testament, this word gets translated as greed. But in context, it seems like he's talking about sexual covetousness or an insatiable, discontent, God-defying desire for more in the realm of sex, which Paul describes as idolatry. That is to say, the reason that people engage in sexually immoral acts is because we have made an idol or a substitute God out of the objects of our desires, right? The root of sexual immorality is looking to the gratification of my desires for the peace and the affirmation and the security and the intimacy that only a relationship with the living God can give me. Sexual immorality is to serve the creature rather than the creator. It's idolatry. A fourth, notice that sexual immorality will meet with God's wrath. Look there at verse 6. Paul pulls no punches. He says there in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Friends, the clear teaching of the Bible is that God is rightly, justly, angry about sexual sin. God owns our bodies. He made them for His glory. And He is dishonored through our sexual immorality. And make no mistake, He sees all of it. We are laid bare to our hearts before Him. He finds it dirty. And he is personally and rightly angered by it. Now listen to Jesus' words from Luke chapter 12, verse 2. Think about these words in light of your sexual thoughts, your sexual words, your sexual deeds. Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul describes the day of judgment at Jesus' return as the day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Friend, listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there is a way of escape from God's coming wrath against sexual immorality. 
and it's faith in Jesus Christ who died to take the wrath that we deserve for our sin against himself, who rose from the dead and who offers to pardon you, to wash you, and to forgive you for your sins. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, uh, remember Paul is writing these words to Christians. Right? Paul thinks that Christians need to be reminded that God's wrath is in fact coming on all whose lives are characterized, fundamentally characterized by sexual sin. They will not escape the wrath of God. So the fifth and final thing about sexual, sexual immorality that we need to see is there in verse 7. And it's this. Sexual immorality no longer fundamentally characterizes the life of the believer. Sexual immorality no longer fundamentally characterizes the life of believers. Look there at verse 7. Paul says, In these, these sins that he just listed, you too once walked when you were living in them. But look at the first two words of verse 8. He says, but now, right? He's reminding the believers in Colossae, sexual immorality, it used to be who you were. That was your identity. That's where you found life. But you have died with Jesus. The wrath of God, if you're in Christ, has already fallen on your sexual immorality. And you are forgiven You have been at the very deepest level given new life. Your life is not in these sins anymore. It's hidden with Christ in God. If you belong to Jesus, you may struggle. You will struggle. You might stumble. But fundamentally, you are no longer defined by your sin. That's not how God sees you anymore. You are not enslaved to your sin. However you feel, however the fight has gone in the past, however difficult it is in the moment, right? Paul says that at the deepest level, you are free. You can fight. You can obey by the grace of God. You can grow, not to be perfect tomorrow, but increasingly to be conformed to the image of God in Jesus Christ. A friend, the Bible teaches us to expect that Christians continue to struggle with sin, The book of James says that we all stumble in many ways. But if unrepentant, unrepentant sexual sin fundamentally characterizes your life, uh, it can only mean that you haven't been saved and changed by Jesus Christ. So what does Paul command us to do uh, when Christians come face to face with our own indwelling sexual immorality, right? Notice Paul doesn't think that we won't struggle with this because he's talking to us about it. He knows that we will. So what should we do when we see sexual immorality in ourselves? We'll look at the first words of verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. A Christian, when you see in yourself the temptation to sexual immorality, put it to death. Consciously choose not to act on that desire. Do not feed on it. Do not, I'm sorry, do not feed it. Do not dwell on it. Do not cherish it. Do not tolerate it. Do not remain in an environment where it is provoked. Put it to death. Call sin, sin in your mind. Remember what sin cost God to forgive you in the bloody death of his son. Condemn sin in your mind. Turn from it. Cry out to God in the moment for help and for mercy. Kill your sin by dragging it into the light of confession to God and to his people. By being fully transparent with believers who can help you, who will love you. Friend, believe God's word to you that your old self has died Believe God's word to you that however powerful your sin, it's not your master anymore. Jesus is your Lord and his new life is in you. Commentator Doug Moo points out that there's a connection uh, between Paul's statement in verse 3, you have died, uh, and his command in verse 5, put to death, therefore. You have died, so put to death what's left. Doug Moo writes this. He says, ultimately, 
then, the imperative put to death in this verse must be viewed as a call to respond to and cooperate with the transformative power that is already operative within us. In other words, Paul's calling you not to do whatever you feel like doing, but to be who you truly are by faith, to remember the identity that's been given to you, to remember God's forgiving and transforming grace that's at work, and to swim with that current. That's the first category of sin Paul calls believers to turn from here, sexual immorality. That's the longest point. I think our culture is most confused about that point, so it felt appropriate to spend the most time on it. Second category of sin uh, from which Paul commands believers to turn is there in verse 8. Second category there, in case you're feeling self-righteous at this moment, is sins of anger. Sins of anger. Picking up there in verse 7. Paul writes, in these, these qualities, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Beloved, some of us sincerely believe that we are not angry people. Beloved, we are wrong. If you are a Christian and you have a pulse, on some level and in some way, you have a struggle with sinful anger. Now listen, to be sure, some manifestations of anger are more obvious and more destructive than others. Right? Some expressions of anger you can't ignore. Aggression, violence, verbal abuse, shouting, clear and obvious grouchiness. Malice is a word that Paul uses in this list. Right? Sometimes our anger is manifest in things like slander and obscene talk, which Paul mentions. But sometimes, if you're like me, uh, our sinful anger gets expressed in subtler forms, right? passive aggression or irritability or just low-key bitterness, uh, withdrawing emotionally in order to hurt someone, abiding words, Jokes that aren't jokes, body language, right? silent treatment, a defensiveness, extended mental arguments while you're standing in the grocery store in which you totally trash that guy who dissed you with all your killer comebacks. Right, friends, we all struggle in some way with sinful anger. And this passage is especially helpful in illustrating what anger is and how it works. We see in this passage that anger expresses an evaluation or a judgment. Anger expresses an evaluation or a judgment. Let me show you that from the passage. So there in verse 6, Paul writes concerning sexual morality that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Well, that same word used there for wrath... In that verse, describing the wrath of God, uh, that's the same word that Paul uses in verse 8 that gets translated as anger. God's wrath is coming, but we are to put away our sinful anger. That's interesting. Well, what is God's wrath against sexual sin, as Paul's talking about? Is it God flying off the handle because he can't control himself? Uh, No, God's wrath is his personal opposition to what he evaluates truly and correctly to be wrong. God, the righteous creator and judge of the universe, he sees sexual sin, he sees his holiness, he sees his lordship, and he evaluates sexual sin to be wrong. And so his anger is, on the last day, coming toward it. As an expression of his evaluation, his disapproval, His anger is acting against something. So friend, that's actually how our anger works as well. When when we get angry, it's because our hearts have made an evaluation of something. Our hearts have made a judgment and said, hey, this, this is wrong. Your anger is your personal opposition to what your heart judges or evaluates to be wrong. And when we are angry because God's righteousness has been violated, 
right? When we're angry because the image of God is not being honored and God is not receiving glory, that is righteous anger. We ought in a measured way to be angry about things that dishonor God, that hurt his image bearers. But the problem is that most of our judgments, most of our evaluations that lead to anger, in those judgments, in those evaluations, most of the time, we're setting ourselves up in God's place, right? I'm angry when I get caught off in traffic because I must be honored and respected and my agenda must be accomplished on my timetable. And I oppose those who will keep me from getting where I, get, where I want to get on time for mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, right? I'm, I'm angry when you don't treat me how I want because it's right that I get what I want, that I be treated how I like to be treated, right? I'm angry when I make an error because it's right that I should feel competent and in control. And when I'm not, I evaluate that as worthy of aggression and of opposition. I am more fiercely angered by people closest to me because I have clearer and more deeply held judgments or evaluations about how those closest to me, right? My spouse, my parents, my children ought to treat me, right? The judgment behind my anger is most of the time not a judgment against the sinfulness of sin. The judgment, the evaluation behind my anger most of the time is that this is a sovereign, I'm sorry, this is a violation of the sovereign will of me, capital M, capital E, exclamation point. And here's the other problem with our anger. Even when we really, truly have been wronged deeply. Christian, listen, when God looks at your life, when God evaluates you and how you've treated him, God sees much with which to find fault. Right? You think other people have treated you badly. You think you haven't gotten what you deserve. Friend, your grievances against others pale in comparison to God's righteous grievances against you. And Christian, how has God handled his anger toward you? Has God poured out on you the wrath that you deserve? Has he withdrawn his life-giving grace from you yet? Or has he been merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding instead fast love, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression? Friend, how has God dealt with his righteous anger toward you? One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Brothers and sisters, God turned his anger on his son Jesus so that he could comfort you, the aggressor, the offender, the sexual sinner, the angry person. Don't you think that we ought to do the same? Don't you want to bear the image of that God in the way that you handle your anger. Friend, given how God has treated you in Jesus Christ, who do we think we are to be angry with others, given what God has done with his anger toward us? So what does Paul command us to do when our anger flares? Verse 8, But now... Now that you've died with Jesus, been raised with Jesus, are alive with Jesus, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them all away. 
The word Paul uses there can have the idea of taking off a garment or taking off an article of clothing. We're to take off our sinful anger like a jacket that no longer belongs to us, like a jacket that doesn't really fit anymore because we're new, right? When you find that you're angry, locate the judgment behind your anger. What is it that I've evaluated to be so wrong that I've opposed it with my anger? Evaluate whether your judgment is in agreement with God's judgment. Am I angry because God is defied and he's not getting the glory he deserves? Or is my anger self-centered? Even if I am being wrong, compare your judgment of others to God's judgment of you. If God used the standard that I'm about to hold this person to, even just in my mind, could I stand or would I need mercy? Right? Take off the jacket. Step down from the throne in the moment of your anger. Right? In becoming a Christian, when you became a Christian, you stepped off the throne. You said, Jesus, you're king. I'm not. I need you to save me. You're my Lord. Friend, live from that identity. When you find yourself angry, step off the throne. Take off the anger jacket. Don't speak from a sinfully angry heart. Paul warns us specifically against slander and obscene talk because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you know yourself to be angry, consider holding your tongue until you're not. Consider bringing your angry anger to the Lord. Confess to him, God, I'm an angry sinner who needs mercy again from Jesus. Please help me. Please make me new. Do it in the moment. If you're with a trusted believer, do it out loud. The second sin category Paul mentions in this passage is anger, and particularly the speech that flows from it. And Paul's commandment is to put it off. Those are the two longer lists in the passage, sexual morality and anger. Third sin category Paul mentions is there in verse 9. It's really just one sin. Verse 9, Paul says, do not lie to one another. Now, brothers and sisters, believers are commanded not to lie to one another. So, brother, sister, do you lie? Do you lie about your sin? Do you lie to protect yourself or other people's feelings? Uh, do you lie unthinkingly about really small things in order to please other people? Uh, do you lie or do you say things that may or may not be true with unwarranted confidence in order to seem like you know more than you do? Right? Do you find yourself unthinkingly saying not actually what you think is true and accurate, but what you think the other person wants to hear because you're not fearing God but other people's? Brothers, brothers, brothers and sisters, do not lie to one another. Paul is not saying that it's fine to lie to unbelievers, but he is focusing particularly on how believers speak to one another. Why? Why shouldn't we lie? Again, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Beloved, don't lie because you're being transformed into the image of the God who is the truth. As we grow as Christians, our speech increasingly ought to look like God's speech. That's a huge theme throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs verse, I'm sorry, chapter 10 verse 11 says, "The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life." Right? Righteous people's speech it's a source of blessing, of encouragement, of wise warning, of illumination, of wisdom. Why is wise people's speech, righteous people's speech, a fountain of life? It's because God's speech is the source of all life. God's speech is how he brought the world into existence. God's speech in the gospel is how he made you alive from the dead. And part of that means, because we're being conformed to his image, that we ought not lie because God doesn't. Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. How has God loved us by speaking the truth to us? 
Brother, sister, every word of yours and mine to one another ought to prove true so that we reflect God's image and love one another well. Church, do not lie to one another. Fourth and final category of sin that this passage brings to our attention uh, is prejudice. Prejudice. Look there at verse 11. Paul says here, right, in the sphere of the church, which as a whole is being conformed to the new self, to the image of our creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What most fundamentally determines how you relate to the many different kinds of people, especially in your church? What is your rule for building relationships with others? Is it external similarities? Is, is that what you build relationships on? Right? Paul here is clearly alluding to the temptation to treat believers of different cultural and ethnic and economic and societal backgrounds with less than perfect Christian love. Now look at the contrast Paul mentions here. First, he contrasts Greek and Jew, right? Greeks and Jews were ethnically and culturally and probably politically very different. They had different diets. They looked different. They had different traditions, different dress, different values, different customs, Uh, Most Jews and Greeks probably had different interests and opinions. Uh, Paul then contrasts circumcised and uncircumcised, right? That's another way of saying the the same distinction. Paul may be taking a shot at those who were arguing that circumcision was necessary for new covenant believers. He would say it's not. Uh, The next pair isn't really a contrast, uh, but Paul mentions barbarians and Scythians. So these were people, apparently, Uh, whom both Jews and Greeks would have looked down on. The Scythians were an ethnic group that was especially despised in Paul's day. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, his opinion of the Scythians was that they they differ little from brute beasts because of their practices. And the last contrast there is between slave and free. In In the ancient worldview, what could be clearer than that free people are more important, more worthy of attention, more worthy of relationship than enslaved people. And even though the the distinctions of the ancient world aren't exactly the same as the distinctions of our day, uh, praise God, uh, one commentator isn't too far off the mark when he says this. He says, the ancient world, just like the modern, was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. So Paul's challenge here to the believers of the ancient world in Colossae and to us, saints, is to understand that in Christ's church, differences of background, nationality, this is a quote from a commentator, language, social standing, and so forth, must be regarded as irrelevant to the question of the love, honor, and respect that are to be shown to individuals and groups. Paul is clearly talking about relationships inside the church in this passage. But while we're talking about it, the fact that outside the church, everyone is created in the image of God means that we ought to treat everyone with the same universal love, honor, and respect that's due to God's image bearers, regardless of how we might differ. And notice, Paul isn't saying that we should pretend that we're not different. Paul isn't saying you should never acknowledge any difference of background in your conversation, right? In a few verses, Paul is specifically going to address Christians who were slaves and Christians who were masters. And it's worth saying, even as we'll say more in two weeks, Lord willing, that the ancient, in the ancient world, slavery was very different than the race-based chattel slavery practiced in the United States. It still wasn't great, but it certainly wasn't the same thing. So the point, Paul is saying, is not to pretend that you don't recognize that people are different, that people come from another culture. Uh, the point is, in Paul's final words, that Christ is all and in all. Right throughout the passage, Paul has been hammering home the reality that you, Christian, 
you have been given a glorious new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has been calling you to live consistently with that identity, to act like the redeemed, ever-increasingly transformed image-bearer of God that you now are. And here in this last verse, Paul's call is to recognize that every one of your brothers and sisters has been given a glorious new identity in Jesus Christ. Friends, when you speak with one another, when you greet one another after church, are you talking to one another like someone whose life is hidden with Christ in God? Are you talking with someone whom you believe one day will be good and glorious like Jesus? Are you talking to someone like you believe that they're new in Jesus if they're a brother and a sister? We're called to treat one another, whatever our differences, with the love and the dignity and the respect and the eagerness for relationship that's befitting to all of our new identities in the Lord Jesus. Christian, think about how God has accepted you in Christ, warts and all. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that the Lord would help us to accept one another with the grace that we've been shown in Christ in line with the new identity that we've been given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the image of the invisible God who became man so that we who had marred your image, who had defied your glory, Lord, might be transformed back into your image by your grace. Lord, thank you that your anger toward us, toward all of our sin, has been turned away through Jesus Christ. Thank you that in patience and in kindness, you are conforming us to his image. Lord, would you be at work mercifully, even gently, graciously in the lives of the saints at Franconia Baptist Church, that we might bear the image of the new self in Christ Jesus. Do these things for our joy and for your glory, through Jesus Christ. Amen.